Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our Advent sermon for today. Lord, God, we praise you. We glorify your name. Lord, pray this Christmas season that you would just inspire and move in our hearts towards, towards generosity, towards community, towards faithfulness to the call that you have for us. Lord, as we explore and as we just marvel at the wonder of the incarnation of God made flesh, and Lord, you coming to reveal God to us in Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for showing us who you are, for revealing to us how to live, for coming to redeem us and save us and set us free. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs> Looking at my notes here in <clears throat> all caps, I said, don't tell me about the Argentina game. <laughs> so reminder, don't tell me about the game. <laughs> all right. All right. This is, uh, in, in the month of December, we, we talk about Advent. We talk about what waiting is a big theme in Advent. We kind of put ourselves in the place of the people of Israel, who for centuries, from Genesis 3.15 on, for the entire history of their people, they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah who had been promised to them. And they, they were waiting and waiting and waiting, the chosen one. And so we put ourselves in that place. Now, as we wait for Christmas, and as we long for Christmas, and we hope for the coming of the Messiah, and we know that Jesus has already appeared in his first advent, and we have a great case study now of what it looks would be like to wait for the first appearing of the Messiah, as we are waiting now for the second appearing of the Messiah. So we wait for Christ to return and for him to come back with great anticipation, with longing. We're called to be, uh, to be aware of when he is going to return and look for him and long for him to return because his return could be, it's imminent. It could be at any moment in time. And so that reminds us of what it must have been like to wait for the coming of the Messiah. And as we're doing this, we're looking at Matthew, Matthew's account of the birth narrative of Jesus. And we, we're going to see that in his description of these three, ver or, wait, I'm going to say three, okay, this is going to get to my like preconceived notions, of the, uh, <laughs> the wise men or the magi who show up, okay? I'm going to give you lots of fodder for your, um, for your family get-togethers and meetings to just be that guy and be the know-it-all and be like, oh yeah, three? There doesn't say there were three wise men. Okay, but you can totally be that guy if you want to. I don't advise it because that guy's usually a jerk, but <clears throat> you can do that. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about the wise men today, or the magi. Another one is, we, we sing that song, We Three Kings, right? They weren't kings, they were magi. Okay, see, I'm telling you, you can totally be that guy. <clears throat> well, this is a very mysterious story that's like, have, have you ever, like, again, like, this is where the familiarity of Christmas kind of gets us where if you just think about this story a little bit in the setting of ancient Israel, what's happening here, the birth of Jesus, like all of this is like really cool stuff. But Matthew just kind of drops this story in about these wise men from the east. We don't know where they came from, really. We don't know much about them. It's just this kind of random story that's dropped in there. And if you zoom out and try to get out of our familiarity with the story, it leaves a lot of questions, right? Like, who are these guys? Where did they come from? What's going on here? Why did Matthew include this? Right? <laughs> uh, he just kind of drops it in there. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit as we go. But it's a very strange story. And so at first glance, we can just kind of marvel at the wonder of this and just be in awe of what God is doing here in Jesus. The birth of Jesus, this 
miraculous star appears, and these magi just start following it, and they end up at Jesus. Crazy, right? <laughs> like wild, wild stuff going on here that we just kind of take for granted. But let's read it, and we'll kind of unpack what Matthew is saying here in this story, why he included it. Okay, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so we talked about Jesus being born in the birth narrative last week, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, so as I said, this is all Matthew gives us. This is like Magi from the east. So from the east, most likely is somewhere in like Persia or somewhere in Arabia. We don't really know. I think the song says in the Orient. We don't know. We don't know where they came from, somewhere east of Jerusalem. But we do have evidence in like Daniel of uh, people who looked at the stars being identified with the same term as Magi. So likely Persia, maybe Babylon, something like that, okay? And they're Magi. They're just, some translations call them wise men. Uh, these guys clearly practiced some form of likely what's astro- astrology. So they're like looking for signs in the heavens to identify either something predicted in the future or something amazing that's happening now. And they're, they work for a king, and their job is to interpret those signs, whether they're like good, good signs for going to war, for famine or not, and like all of that stuff. That's their job is to interpret signs in the heavens. In the Old Testament prophets, they condemn astrology. <laughs> so if this is what these guys are practicing, which is likely, this is, this is crazy. Again, think about this. These guys are practicing something that the Old Testament condemns, and yet God is going to speak their language to bring them to Jesus. It's not that God is contributing in this. God's not like doing something that he condemns, but he knows that they're looking for this. And so, in a sense, he kind of contextualizes this message and speaks their language to bring them to Christ, which is wild, a wild thought in and of itself. They came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these guys, they show up in Jerusalem. They saw his star. They interpreted this star, which is likely a miraculous uh, star that God produced in some way, shape, or form. It's most likely not just some, uh, there's a lot of ideas out there about, was this a supernova? What kind of thing was this? Like, there's evidence in here where Matthew says that it like reappears and then it stops over <laughs> their, their house. This is likely a miraculous thing that God was doing, right? Something special. So they see this star. God speaks their language and they identify it and then they come with the explicit purpose to worship him. So they think that a new king has been born in Israel. And this was common practice in that day. When a new king was born, you come and you bring gifts. You bring gifts to honor the new king. So this is kind of all that they're doing. Now let's continue reading the story. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod's disturbed. He's the king of Judea, the area that Israel is in now. Not the reaction that he should have. Okay, take note of that. As... Herod wasn't like a devout Jewish (laughs) follower by any stretch of the imagination. But as the king of Israel, he should have been expectantly awaiting the Messiah. 
especially, right? He's the king of Israel, so he should be waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But he's not. He's disturbed. And also, all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him. All Jerusalem is supposed to be waiting for the coming of the Messiah from Genesis 3.15. Advent. Remember? Think about this. They're, they're supposed to be excited about this. Like, he's here. They're disturbed. This could mean a couple of things. One, like, I mean, perhaps all of the people of Jerusalem are disturbed about this news because they know Herod, and they know what he's going to do. Herod was known for being brutal and harsh to anyone who threatened his throne. He had one of his own kids even put to death because they threatened his throne. So this guy's harsh. So they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Someone's going to challenge Herod and his rule. That means bad things for us. So maybe that's what it means. We don't know. It could also mean that like, the people of Jerusalem is kind of referring to uh, the leaders of Jerusalem, like the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and they hear this news and they're disturbed too because, again, uh-oh, if this is true, the Messiah is going to threaten my position of power and influence in this community and the status quo. He's going to challenge me. And I think it's most likely the latter of the, the leaders of Jerusalem, the religious leaders feeling threatened by this, because what Matthew's doing in part of this is setting up the scene for the rest of his gospel and the challenges that Jesus is going to face from his own people, from the religious leaders, and here Matthew's using Herod as kind of an example of this. So not the reaction that they should have. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Okay, Herod doesn't even know. <laughs> That's another indicator Matthew's giving us here. He's supposed to be expectantly awaiting for the Messiah. He doesn't even know where he's supposed to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's a quotation from Micah 5, 2 and 4. And again, one of Matthew's themes, remember, he's primarily writing to a Jewish audience. One of his themes is to remind them that Jesus is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. And again, the location of his birth, not something that a preborn child can determine, right? And yet, God is faithfully bringing this to pass. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. So, as, as we keep reading, we're not going to read all of this, but what he's doing here is he's identifying, like, how old is the child? So, when did the star appear? He needs to know how old the child is, so he knows what child to look for. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. He's deceitful in this. As we know, if we were to keep reading in the story, he doesn't really want to go worship the Messiah. He wants to kill the Messiah. And what he ends up doing, since, as we know, the end of the story plays out, uh, the Magi receive uh, a dream, a vision, and they go home a different way and don't come back and report to Herod. So what Herod does instead is, say, okay, so now I know about what time the star appeared. That means every child under two years old is a threat to my throne. So he comes into Bethlehem and he murders every child under two years old in order to preserve his throne. So this is the type of evil that this man is capable of. And he uses this lie and deception to try to get them to come back and tell him. So he wants to go worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Again, indicative that this was a miraculous thing. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Okay, so we get this kind of picture of discipleship as well in these magi who we don't know their understanding of the Messiah, the Old Testament scriptures. We don't know much about that, but yet they're overjoyed at this. So they're full of joy, whereas the people of Israel, the chief priests, the leaders, they're disturbed by this. That's backwards. Remember, Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He's trying to point out to them, like, hey, guys, these guys are overjoyed, whereas you're disturbed. What's going on here? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. So now we get a picture of worship as well. They humble themselves, they bow down, they assume a position of subservience to this child. Now, also, this likely wasn't a scene at the manger, so if you're picturing them at the like, manger and in the barn, it said house. Okay, so they're in a house now, but they're still in Bethlehem. They likely stayed there for a while to wean the child and all of this stuff, okay? More fodder for your Christmas parties, okay? Be like, that scene never happened, all right? <laughs> they were in a house, man. <clears throat> <laughs> So they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. So they direct all of their worship to Jesus, to this young child, who's anywhere between zero and two years old. Then they open their treasures, so they have these things of great value, and they present him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were expensive. This was a symbol of wealth. And so they present to them these, these, these gifts. They were used in temple worship. You can read about it in Exodus 30. Ultimately, it's likely a fulfillment of Isaiah 60, uh, verse 6, which talks about how people from other lands will come and present. says, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Even, what, 900 years before Jesus, Isaiah prophesied about them bringing gold and frankincense. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. One of the main themes that we see in the birth narrative of Jesus is God directing everything through dreams, through visions, by appearing to Joseph in a dream. He appears, <laughs> sends an angel to Mary, to Zechariah, time and time again. He sends angels to the shepherds. God is just directing this whole magnificent, glorious scene, and he's moving to do something amazing in this birth of Jesus. Band, you guys can come and get set up. Our big idea here is in the comparison between the Magi and Israel's leaders. I think what Matthew is doing here, remember, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he's trying to point out to them, hey guys, like look at these, these I keep almost saying three. Oh my goodness. He keep, <laughs> look at these wise men, these Magi, these guys who practice astrology in a nation like Persia, perhaps, who you guys hate. Uh, they serve the king, and they come... They come and they worship, and you guys don't. Israel's leaders, they are Jewish, so they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament scriptures at their disposal. They've been waiting for the Messiah for their entire history as a people. They should know better. They should be expectantly awaiting the Messiah. 
yet they're indifferent. The religious leaders who tell them where the Messiah was to be born, that's all Matthew says about it. They live five miles from Bethlehem, and they couldn't, be, they couldn't be inconvenienced enough to go and see for themselves. They send these guys. Like, the Messiah might be here. <laughs> and they don't even go look. They're totally indifferent. They're totally, or just disturbed, like Herod. And then they destroy. Herod destroys all of the children two years old and younger in Bethlehem to cling to his power. The Magi, conversely, they're foreign. We don't know how much they even know about the Messiah. They don't have, they're not among the people of God in the sense that they have the Old Testament law and they're practicing it and they're abiding by it and they have temple worship and they don't have that. And yet, here they are. Again, it's evidence God's doing something miraculous here. They're expectant. So they, they saw this star, they were looking for it, and they followed it, and they went there. And they genuinely worship. We'll explore what this looks like for us a little bit more when I come back up. But let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, God, we first of all just thank you for the incarnation, for Jesus. And Lord, the miraculous circumstances around his birth that point to him being the true Messiah, that Lord, we can trust it. We know that you are God in flesh. And so, Lord, we don't hesitate to give our worship to you and to surrender everything to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would inspire and move in us to worship, to true, genuine, authentic worship. For, Lord, you are worthy of it. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are God. And so we worship you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Remember our big idea and the main application of, of this text and the story of these magi <laughs> is the comparison between them and the people of Israel or Israel's leaders and the differences that we see in their response to the Messiah. We're going to walk through these and kind of just unpack them a little bit one by one. First is that Israel's leaders were Jewish, meaning that they had the scriptures, they had the culture, they had the temple, they had the worship, they had everything set up for them. They had been waiting for the Messiah. They were the ones who were supposed to be expectant and longing for the Messiah to come. And yet, in this story, we see them being indifferent, disturbed, and even willing to destroy innocent little children in order to preserve the status quo of their culture and their power. And then we see these guys who are practicing astrology. <laughs> it's not good. It's not right. And yet God calls them through this miraculous star and they follow it. They expectantly long for it. They were waiting for it. They see it and they travel a long distance to come. And when they do, they worship. What a contrast. What a difference between the two. And remember, Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience who's trying to say, guys, He's, he's poking the bear a little bit here. In the Jewish mindset, so these guys, these magi, they might have even been from Babylon. Okay, so when they were in exile in Babylon, Babylon became the symbol of sinful, evil power structures and <laughs> empires in the Jewish mind. So when they're reading this text and they see magi, astrology, seeing stars and coming, they're like, ah, not them. Come on, anybody else but these guys. And so, on this first point, what God is doing here is he's revealing to the people of Israel their prejudice, their bias. He's saying, guys, remember, we've gone through all of this. 
Remember the promise to Abraham that through you, you're going to be a blessing to all people, that my plan of redemption is cosmic in nature. It is for all people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And in Revelation, we see a picture of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping God in the new creation. This is where it was always headed. And he's pointing out their prejudice and their bias because they would be really uncomfortable reading about a bunch of magi from Persia or Babylon coming to worship the Messiah. So what he's pointing to is this. What's happening in Jesus is something new. It's something cosmic in nature. That this king is a king for all people. He is a king for people from all over creation. People have... I like that. You guys can clap at that point. That was good. That was good. <laughs> In Christ, the church is multi-ethnic. And we should cherish that. We should view the multi-ethnic expression of the gospel, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, coming to be a part of the people of God is something beautiful. That the differences and the challenges that that produces, we should view as a blessing of how we can gather together and worship God from different cultures and different tribes and different ethnicities and just praise God. And we're united around Christ. I told you I've been watching the World Cup a lot lately. And <laughs> that in and of itself is a check on my bias, right? And my... When I, when I watch and I see people from every culture around the world there, like, what's, what's that stirring within me? It's just a question that I can ask myself. Like, what's my response to this? Is this, like, like beautiful diversity? Or am I kind of like, oh, this is uh, it's awkward. It's weird. Like, they're speaking different languages. I don't get it. Like, all of this, uh, it's a check on me. And when I watch these games, what I see is <laughs> people, people are singing their national anthem and it looks like a church service. In fact, it looks more passionate than a church service. These folks are closing their eyes. They're crying. They're like raising their hands, singing their national anthem to their country. And what I've been thinking of and processing as I'm reading this is, gosh, I just long for the day. What a beautiful picture. Well, that'll be us in the new creation with people from all over the world gathering together, singing praises to Jesus and our Savior. It's just a beautiful picture of that. So, and whenever I talk about the multi-ethnic family of God, and it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I remember asking a friend of mine who's African-American, I asked him a question about his experience of being an American or something like that. I don't remember the exact nature of the question. And I wasn't planning on saying this this morning, so <laughs> I don't want to... Um, I might not have all the details right. I asked him his experience of it. And he said, when I was younger, I used to be really angry. He said, when I would encounter a scenario like George Floyd, I would get really angry. But since Christ has saved me and redeemed me, now I just do my best to view everybody through the lens of in Christ. And through the gospel message of how, and that bitterness, that animosity, he said, 
I don't experience it anymore. It's gone. Because I view everybody as through the lens of in Christ, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ, we are all one, united in Christ. And that is a beautiful picture of the church and how we are supposed to view one another. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes, and our next campaign is going to be all about communion. And that's part of communion, is how this is what unites us. We are one in Christ Jesus. So despite all of our differences, or I should say, we can view all of our differences as a blessing as we come together and worship around the table and express our love and our devotion, our unity in Christ Jesus. Because this is an essential component of the gospel, you guys. I heard Preston Sprinkle talk about this in his podcast, and I was like, oh, I don't know, man. And then I started thinking about it and reading it, and I come across texts like this in Scripture. I'm like, what's Matthew doing here? He's pointing out to them the multi-ethnic nature of this new movement in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians is all about the dividing wall of hostility coming down and how Jews and Gentiles can become united and one in Christ. In Revelation, we see this picture of everyone from every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping. It's everywhere. That Christ's redemption and his work and this new people that he's creating in the church, in us, is multi-ethnic. It's cosmic. And so we should long for this. We should desire it. Because this is an intrinsic part of the gospel message. That Christ's work is for all people. Next, let's look at their response. Jewish leaders, Herod, they were indifferent or they were disturbed versus the Magi who were expectant. I've shared my story many times with you guys before, but I grew up in a great Christian home and until I was 20 years old, my response to the gospel was just indifference and apathy. Until when I was about 20, I had an experience with Christ in worship one day. And I felt just ashamed of that. <laughs> and yet just filled with the grace and mercy of Christ in the same moment. And since that day, honestly, I can say, like, my heart has been filled with this passion, desire, and love. Longing for Christ. And so that's my prayer for you guys. That's my prayer for all of us. Is that in our Western world and in our culture of Christianity, and with, there's a lot to it. Indifference is very simple. Apathy is very simple. Because we've grown up with it, we're so familiar with it, we're not really challenged, it's not hard to be a Christian. There's more for your faith. And it's this expectant longing. I often ask you guys, what do you long for the most? That is your functional God. What you long for the most is your God. If it's not God, it's idolatry and something else. So what are you expecting? What are you longing for? Let's take time this Christmas season to reflect on what we long for the most. Is it indeed Christ our Savior? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Or is it something or someone else? And if that is our response of longing for him the most, it leads to worship. It leads to worship. The negative example of this is Herod. In the interest of preserving his power and his throne, he kills the children of Bethlehem. He's willing to destroy in order to maintain his position of power and influence. When we read stories like this in Scripture, it should remind us to be aware of the temptation to preserve power and influence. It's very easy to commit terrible atrocities in the name of it and to justify it in other terms we can easily 
justify evil actions in the name of the greater good, whatever that greater good might be. That is not the way of Jesus. Instead, we have a picture of worship in the Magi. These guys, they give their time. This took a long time. It's not like they could just hop on a flight and fly over there. They traveled a long way to get there. The Jewish religious leaders, they live five miles from Bethlehem. They could have traveled there at any time. They didn't. These guys traveled a long distance to get there. It's a great effort. took a lot of time out of their day. It's hard to work your day job when you're traveling all that way. They bring their wealth. They brought wealth. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they laid it down at the feet of the Messiah in worship. And they bowed down. They assumed a posture of humility before this toddler, <laughs> infant or toddler, depending on how old he was when they showed up. Imagine bowing down to a toddler. Okay, just if you've been around toddlers, think about that for a minute. <laughs> That's my favorite phase of like early childhood because they just got food everywhere. They're a total mess and I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> But not bowing down to a toddler. Right? These guys do. They walk in and they acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. We don't know how much they really genuinely worship because how much they really understood about Jesus being God in flesh, about him being the promised Messiah. We don't, we don't fully know. But what they do is a picture of genuine worship. They give their time. They give their treasure. They travel long distance. They give their energy to this. And then when they get there, they bow down and they worship. I think it's, we don't do the postural bow down and worship a lot anymore. And I think in doing so, we kind of miss part of this picture of what it must be like. Because our body, our posture, and the way that we express ourselves reveals what's going on in, heart to, in our heart to a certain degree, right? And when we assume this posture, it can help us. So when we pray and we kneel, what we're saying is, Jesus, you are greater than me. And so I'm praying to you and I'm worshiping you. I'm giving you homage, praise, glory, and honor because he is greater. And he's the only one who is worthy of our worship. And so when you look at this list, <laughs> which one describes your life more. Is the idea of a multi-ethnic expression of faith kind of uncomfortable for you? Are you expectantly waiting for the Messiah? Are you longing for Christ more than anything else? Or do you feel like your spiritual life is indifferent? Or it unsettles you and you're disturbed by the even proposition of Jesus being Lord yeah, because that means you're not Lord. What are you willing to do to preserve the status quo in your position of influence? And does that describe your worship? Being willing to sacrifice time, talent, treasure, energy, effort, to assume a posture of humility and to worship and praise Jesus as your Savior. Just check your heart. Spend a moment right now and just reflect on that. Before we come to the table, just reflect on Jesus the multi-ethnic expression of the faith, your longing for him and your worship of him.
Is he the one who you long for the most? Just spend a moment in reflecting on that right now. supper. Communion elements are set up up here. Would you pray with me for the bread? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. Now, Lord, you have taken our sin on yourself and died in our place. And Lord, in the place of the two, Jew and Gentile, you have made one new unified in Christ, and your body is the symbol of that. We are the body of Christ. Lord, you are the foundation of our identity. You are the hope of our salvation. All of our faith, all of our trust is in you. And we thank you, Lord, for dying in our place and making us new as we partake of the bread together. Let's partake of the and shedding your blood for us. That, Lord, through your blood, we have a new covenant. A covenant not based on the law, but on your grace, on your mercy. And so, Lord, we are made holy. We stand before you righteous because of your sacrifice on the cross for us. That, Lord, through your blood, we are made clean. free to enter your presence. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we long for your presence to be with you. To experience the fullness of your glory. To worship you together. Spirit whom you have given us. Lord, you dwell within 
your people, Lord. Move in our hearts to worship. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, as we are here even. Lord, draw us to you, Jesus. You are the one that we need. You are the one that our heart desires, that we long for the most, to abide in you, to be in your presence, to know you more. And Lord, it is in your presence where there is fullness of joy. It's in your presence where we find peace with you, God, where we find peace with one another. And Lord, we find peace with ourselves as we know that you are making us new. and praise throughout the week this week. Even amidst the stress of Christmas. <laughs> Just help us to pause and wonder at the incarnation, at you dwelling among us and your desire to be with us. Lord, it is our desire to be with you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.